Hello, and welcome to the History of Philosophy in India by Janardan Ganeri and Peter Adamson, brought to you with the support of the King's College London Philosophy Department and the LMU in Munich, online at historyofphilosophy.net. Today's episode, Follow the Evidence, Dignaga's Logic. Have you ever been asked to serve on a jury? It's an unusually high-stakes case of applied epistemology, where you must decide whether to let yourself be persuaded by evidence. Often, that evidence takes the form of testimony. Perhaps someone has been accused of arson, and a witness claims to have seen them set the fire. If the witness is being truthful, then she knows that the defendant is guilty. She watched him set the fire with her own eyes. Can she now transfer that knowledge to you through a convincing account of what she saw? The philosophers of the Nyaya school would have said yes. For them, testimony is one of the fundamental sources of knowledge and is thus designated as a pramana. But as a juror, you may be in doubt about the witness's credibility. And as a philosopher, you may doubt whether testimony is really a source of knowledge. If so, you might call as your own witness the Buddhist thinker Dignaga. We mentioned last time that he acknowledges only two means of acquiring knowledge, namely perception and inference. He refuses to dignify testimony, the assertions of authoritative persons, with the title of pramana. This is not because he thinks that testimony never gives us knowledge, but because when it does do so, an inference is required. To get knowledge from that witness in the arson case, you would have to combine her testimony about the setting of the fire with the knowledge that she is reliable. From these two pieces of information, you may infer that the defendant is guilty. This might sound like pedantic bookkeeping, a way of getting the number of pramanas down from three to two, but it is actually a case of a Buddhist not wanting to keep the books venerated in the Brahminical tradition. Prosecuting the case against the vaunted testimony of Vedic texts, Dignaga insists that they can provide no independent source of knowledge. Though his position here responds most directly to the Nyaya school, it also makes a vivid contrast with the epistemology of Mimamsa. Testimony is not innocent until proven guilty, as they claimed, but needs to be evaluated on each occasion as to its reliability. Dignaga is to this extent a rationalist, in the sense that he thinks every claim to knowledge must be based on evidence directly available to the individual knower. Knowledge by testimony is no counterexample to this rule, because it is up to each of us to judge the credibility of the testimony, and only if it passes muster, to infer that the claims set out in the testimony are true. But this is not the only kind of inference Dignaga recognizes. We saw last time that he thinks we use direct perception to grasp unique particulars. Reflection at the general or universal level, such as the reflection that smoke billows from houses that have been set on fire, is imposed onto such perceptual experience an act of human construction. It is at this level that we have inferences. Ah, you might think, this house is billowing with smoke. When houses do that, that means they're on fire. So this house is evidently on fire. Good thing it isn't mine. Dignaga calls this kind of reflection inferring to oneself, which is thus basically his term for reasoning. He contrasts it to inferring for others, which is what you do when you are trying to convince someone else of something, as opposed to deciding whether to be convinced yourself. If inferring to oneself is reasoning, then inferring for others is demonstration, producing an explicit argument, as I might do if I calmly explain to you that your house is on fire because there is smoke billowing out of it. Here, we have one of Dignaga's signal achievements as a philosopher. 
He is the first Indian thinker to distinguish the rules of reasoning, which effectively means determining which arguments are formally valid, from the rules of debate, which have to do with persuading other people of things. Another fundamental achievement is that in his collected verses on the sources of knowledge, Dignaga explains to us the difference between good and bad inferences, whether these are involved in inferring to oneself, that is, the distinction between reasoning well or badly, or for others, the difference between debating fairly or unfairly. Thus far, Dignaga's Yogacara Buddhism has been an obvious background to his epistemology. We just mentioned the critique of Vedic tradition implied by his demotion of knowledge by testimony to a form of inference, and his claim that general concepts are human constructions gives him a place in the Buddhist's own tradition of philosophical skepticism. It would seem, though, that when he comes to offer a theory of inference, he's trying to remain neutral. Philosophers of various schools might adopt his account, and in fact, this is exactly what happened. Dignaga's analysis was assimilated by a wide range of later thinkers, including even the Nyaya school, from Udyotakara onwards. In honor of this one instance where the Nyayakas and Buddhists got on with one another like a house on fire, let's shift from the arson case to the classic Nyaya example of smoke that reveals the presence of fire on a mountain. According to Dignaga, any inference can be rendered in a form like the following. This mountain has fire because it has smoke. First, a proposition is stated, the mountain has fire, then a reason is given, in this case, smoke. Note that this is the reverse of the deductive pattern we often find in European logicians, starting with Aristotle, where one or more premises are given and then a conclusion is drawn like this, the mountain has smoke, therefore it has fire. In another contrast with Aristotle, Dignaga's reason is not really explanatory. Instead, the smoke reveals the presence of fire or allows us to predict that the mountain has fire, but there is no talk of answering the question of why there is a fire. Still, Dignaga would agree with Aristotle that the proposition to be proved is something we do not yet know, and that it is not something that can be immediately determined by perception. Aristotle gives the memorable example that if you were standing on the moon, you could just see the cause of an eclipse and would not need to seek an explanation for it. The inference patterns Dignaga studies all have the same structure. There is always an object, which is the locus or basis of the inference, which in our example is the mountain. The Sanskrit word for this is paksha. Our inference will seek to show that the locus possesses a certain property, such as the property of having fire. This property is called the sadhya. We establish this by citing a hetu, meaning another property possessed by the locus that is, evidence or a reason for inferring the property we're interested in, so in this case, the property of having smoke. Thus, every inference has the form, the locus has an inferred property because it has an evidential property, or if you prefer that in Sanskrit, the paksha, the mountain, has a hetu, smoke, so it must have the sadhya, fire. Now, there are many inferences which do have this form, but are not good inferences, not compelling moves in the space of reasons. You shouldn't infer that the mountain is covered in grass because it is green, because there are many green things other than grass. The mountain might be covered with moss, green paint, or be the site of a St. Patrick's Day parade. So, being green cannot serve as good evidence for the presence of grass. The evidential property, being green, and the inferred property, being covered in grass, are not connected in the right way. Dignaga's goal in his theory of inference is to say what this right way is, to define the relation between paksha, sadhya, and hetu.
This is just to ask, when is evidence sufficient to convince us that one property always comes together with another? Tignaga's answer is that the evidence must satisfy a certain set of three conditions. This is his celebrated Trairupa theory, the theory of the triple conditioned sign. The first condition is that the evidential property must indeed occur in the locus of the inference. This is basically obvious. I cannot use smoke as my evidence that a mountain is on fire unless there is indeed smoke on the mountain. The other two conditions are less obvious and involve a bit more terminology. Dignaga introduces the notions of a homologue and a heterologue, or we might say in plainer English, a similar case and a dissimilar case. Dignaga defines them as follows. A similar case is any other object apart from the locus that has the inferred property. In our example, this would be something else that is on fire. A dissimilar case is some other object which lacks the inferred property that is something that is not on fire. Dignaga is effectively describing a method of investigation here. If you want to know whether a given thing has a given property, then notice some second property it has, and look to see whether other things with that second property have the first property that you're interested in. In our example, the second property is the smoke, so let's consider something similar, a smoky kitchen. Oh look, there's fire there too. Thus far, smoke is looking like good evidence for fire. Next, let's consider something dissimilar, something that lacks the second property. No arsonist has been round your house, so happily it lacks smoke, and the absence of smoke billowing from your house coincides with your houses not being on fire. This confirms that smoke really does correlate with fire, so that the presence of smoke on the mountain would seem to be a convincing sign of fire there. All this is summed up in Dignaga's second and third conditions. The second condition is that the evidential property must come together with the inferred property in at least one similar case, like the smoky kitchen where fire is also found. The third condition is that in every known dissimilar case where the evidential property is absent, so is the inferred property, like your smoke-free house that is not on fire. We might call these the positive example condition and the no counter example condition. Taking them together, we can conclude that whatever has the evidential property must have the inferred property. If every locus of smoke is also a locus of fire, then we can soundly infer from the presence of smoke in a particular place to the presence of fire there. Notice that Dignaga is being true to his promise that inferences always operate at a general level, involving universal concepts. Good inferences are the ones where some general rule or law connects the evidential and inferred properties, so that we can say, whatever is like this is like that, or if you prefer it in variables, whatever is x is y. Dignaga calls such a connection a relation of pervasion, something that will be a topic of huge importance in later centuries. Gangesha, in the 14th century, will review more than a dozen accounts of pervasion that emerged in the generations after Dignaga. We said earlier that inference, as Dignaga analyzes it, does not have the form of a deduction, with premises leading to a conclusion. That might seem to be a superficial point, a mere matter of presentation. After all, couldn't we rephrase what he is saying as a pure deduction? We could begin with the premise, the mountain has smoke, add the further premise, whatever has smoke has fire, and then conclude, therefore, the mountain has fire. Well, not quite. For one thing, Dignaga is primarily interested in inference as a means of acquiring knowledge. He tries to articulate the conditions under which the result of an inference is a rationally acceptable or justified belief. 
So he is not interested only in the form of the argument, like a logician who simply wants to point out the validity of saying, this is an X, every X is a Y, therefore this is a Y. Dignaga is more demanding than that. He thinks that a good inference is not only valid, but also sound. It must have true premises. In fact, he goes further still. Not only must the argument pattern be valid and have true premises, but the premises must be known to be true. Only if this is so can we say that the inferrer knows the conclusion to be true. So only then do we have an inference that meets Dignaga's specifications. And, in keeping with this focus on what the reasoner actually knows, Dignaga actually doesn't quite lay down a condition of the form every x is y. In this respect, his demand is weaker. The reasoner must satisfy herself that every known x is known to be y. She does not need to be able to say that all smoky things, past, present, and future, have been, are, and will be on fire. If she can state confidently that every time she has experienced something to be smoky, it has been on fire, then, by Dignaga's lights, she is in a position to infer fire from smoke when she sees it on the mountain. The lack of exceptions proves the rule. Again, this shows that Dignaga is not really interested in pure deductions. What he's describing comes closer to the notion of induction, where we look to our previous experience to justify the inferences we make about the present and future. To that extent, Dignaga's trairupya may seem familiar and even rather straightforward. But there are a couple of details in his formulation that may give us pause. One is the relationship between the second condition, about finding a similar case, and the third, about excluding counterexamples. The worry is that these two may be redundant. Saying that anything that has smoke has fire would seem to be equivalent to saying that anything that lacks smoke lacks fire. So why does Dignaga give these as two distinct criteria, rather than as one criterion that can be formulated either positively or negatively? Perhaps it is because the second criterion requires us to find at least one actual similar case. All the third criterion tells us to do is verify that where smoke is absent, fire is absent too. This wouldn't guarantee that there are really any cases apart from the locus we started from, namely the mountain, that have both smoke and fire. What the second criterion adds then is a positive basis for induction. Another, more subtle problem, is that Dignaga always tells us to look at things other than the locus when we are checking similar and dissimilar cases. That makes perfect sense with a one-off topic of inquiry, like the smoke billowing from this particular mountain or that particular house. We just need to look at other things that are and are not smoky. But consider the inference, odd numbers are divisible by two because they are integers. If we exclude the class of odd numbers from our search because it is the locus, then every remaining integer is divisible by 2. Here being an integer is the evidential property, and being divisible by 2 is the inferred property. So, this would count as a good piece of inference according to Dignaga's conditions. This unwelcome result was pointed out by Jain philosophers who criticized him for it and tried to repair the problem. Criticism and modification of the theory also emerged within the Buddhist tradition. By far the most influential figure here was his commentator, Dharmakirti, so influential, in fact, that his writings seem to have replaced Dignaga's among Sanskrit readers. For this reason, Dignaga's collected verses, and the comments he added to it himself, until very recently had to be read in Tibetan translation, until evidence of the Sanskrit original was uncovered. Dhammakirti's own works became the basis for later Buddhist epistemology, which tended to come in the form of commentaries on Dhammakirti, 
or manuals presenting the main elements of Dharmakirti's thought in a more manageable form. Dharmakirti had two main complaints about Dignaga's discussion of inference, an imprecision in the formulation of the triple condition, and Dignaga's failure properly to address the problem of induction. The first complaint goes back to what we were just saying about cases where the locus we are interested in is a class rather than a single item. When Dignaga says in his first condition that the evidential property must be present, this is ambiguous. Suppose a policeman, while testifying in a trial, were to say that arsonists like candles. This could mean that all arsonists, in his experience, like candles, or merely that they tend to like them, or even just that the policeman has come across candle-loving arsonists now and again. Hence, Dhammakirti's complaint. If our locus is a class, then stating that the evidential property is present in the locus could mean that it belongs to every member of the class, or only some members. Dignaga's formulation of the second and third conditions is similarly ambiguous. Do I have to examine all potentially similar and dissimilar cases to see if the evidential property really does pervade the inferred property, or only find a few examples? This bears on the question we mentioned earlier, as to whether the second and third conditions are equivalent. If it's sufficient to find just one similar case, but we have to be exhaustive in looking for counterexamples, then the two conditions are clearly not the same. But, if the examination of both similar and dissimilar cases is to be exhaustive, then they amount to one and the same search. After all, making sure that every time smoke appears, fire is present, means verifying that when smoke does not appear, fire is not present. Dhammakirti solved these problems by reformulating the three conditions. He introduces a Sanskrit restrictive particle, eva, which means only, exactly, or really. His new conditions are now as follows. The first locus condition now states that the evidential property is observed to be present exactly in the locus. The second and third, which he calls the agreement and disagreement conditions, say that this evidential property is observed only in similar cases and is really absent from dissimilar cases. The restrictive particle clears up the ambiguity in each case. It indicates that the evidential property is present in the whole locus, that it is present in some similar cases, though not necessarily all of them, and that it is absent from all dissimilar cases. On this updated version of the theory, it's really the last condition that does the work. Pervasion of one property by another means that the evidential property is absent from whatever lacks the inferred property. For instance, smoke is absent from whatever lacks fire. This is much stronger than the second condition, which simply tells us to find at least one similar case, like the smoky kitchen where fire is also present. As for Dharmakirti's second worry, it strikes at the heart of inductive reasoning. The problem arises whether we try to justify an inference positively by finding similar cases, like things with both smoke and fire, or negatively by finding cases where both properties are lacking, what is not smoking has no fire. How can we support a universal generalization having seen only a limited number of examples? The 99 smoky things I have seen thus far involve fire, but what about the hundredth, or thousandth, or millionth? Dharmakirti's solution is to go beyond the mere observation of properties that always come together or pervade one another and demand a link that explains why the properties come together. To do this, he identifies different kinds of reason that could link properties. The first type is a reason that links cause and effect. This is the kind of case we've been talking about the whole time. Because smoke is an effect of fire, it never appears without fire also being present. 
Or two properties might both be effects of a shared cause. The generalization night follows day is true, not because day causes night, but because day and night are both caused by the rotation of the earth. An example cited by some Buddhists is the inference of lemon color from lemon taste, when both are products of the same cause, the lemon itself. A second kind of link is what Dharmakirti calls a natural reason. To illustrate, Dharmakirti says that being a shimshapa tree is a reason for being a tree. Obviously, being a shimshapa tree, or for that matter a lemon tree, is not a cause for being a tree, but neither is the relation between these two properties accidental. In the Sanskrit term for this kind of cause, svabhava hetu, you'll recognize the word svabhava, meaning the essence or nature of a thing which was the target of Nagarjuna's critical philosophy. So, what Dhammakirti is saying is that the nature of the shimshapa tree includes or implies the nature of tree. Puzzlingly, he says that such inferences are actually based on the relation of identity as opposed to causality. He might mean that the shimshapa tree and the tree are the same thing, whereas cause and effect are always distinct. Or maybe he means that the tree actually has only one property, which is being described in a more and a less fine-grained way, as we might say that someone has the property of being tall and of being six foot three inches, where these two properties are really identical. Finally, there is the reason based on non-observation, which we came across in an earlier episode. We were looking at the Nyaya claim that we can perceive absences. It is the pattern of reasoning exemplified by such inferences as there is no pot here because it is not observed. Such inferences rest on the truth of a counterfactual claim. If there were a pot here, it would be observed, assuming normal lighting conditions, properly working sense faculties, and so on. As with the first two kinds of reason, this third kind of reason, based on non-observation, shows not just that two properties do in fact come together in our experience, but that they must come together. A good inference requires some real link or tie between the properties. Nothing has the taste of lemon without the scent of lemon, because both are caused by lemons. Nothing can be a lemon tree without being a tree. When you don't find that life has given you lemons, you can't make lemonade. This is Dharmakirti's solution to the problem of induction. A genuine link between properties explains why we have always seen the properties together, and gives us a guarantee that they will continue to come together in the future. This has been rather a long episode, but like someone zesting a lemon, it has only scratched the surface. The later development of Buddhist logic would be a long story and one we aren't going to delve into in this current series. We are, however, going to give you a chance to see how Buddhist logic retains its relevance right down to the present day. Next time, we'll have as our guest one of the world's most prominent philosophers of logic who has taken an interest in Buddhism and been inspired by its logical theories. So, join us to verify the following general inference. When the locus is an interview and it has the property of featuring Graham Priest, then it also has the property of being well worth a listen. That's here on The History of Philosophy in India.